name of the book is A Whole New Mind. A Whole New Mind. By, by Daniel H. Pink. And um, the, the subtitle is Why Right-Brainers Will Rule the Future. Wow. And his point is that this is no longer the industrial age. It's no longer the age where farming was the thing. So the people who are making money now are people who think outside the box. You know, they are the people who are the innovators, the, pe the people who are the problem solvers, the people who look at a situation and say, now this isn't working. This is a better way to do this. And here's the, here's the device or here's the idea or here's the concept you need in order to do it better. And that is what you learn when you practice an art form. You learn to solve problems. Earlier this month, the long-awaited film Black Panther was released in theaters across the nation. The movie had already gone to break box office numbers, and currently at the time of this recording, it's sitting at $476 million. Directed by Ryan Coogler and featuring a star-studded cast, the film was making headlines even before its release. The film stars Chadwick Boseman. You may know him from biopics like 42 and Get On Up. In this film, he plays T'Challa, otherwise known as the Black Panther himself, a superhero and king to the fictional African country of Wakanda. The film also stars Academy Award-winning actress Lupita Nyong'o from 12 Years a Slave and Queen of Katwe. But these actors alone do not begin to convey how star-studded this cast was. It also features other well-known African-American actors like Angela Bassett, Forrest Whitaker, and Sterling K. Brown. Between the multiple premieres and press junkets around the film, one thing became clear. The film was going to be a hit. A film of this kind, with a predominantly black cast, a black director, and the massive $200 million budget courtesy of Marvel and Disney, was sure to break some barriers. One thing most media outlets seemed to agree on was this. This was more than just a movie. This was an unapologetically black movie. This was a movie about a black superhero. And it's a movie with a story we haven't really seen before. This was a cultural moment. Apparently, others felt this way too, because the excitement around the film inspired others to do something that ended up in a worldwide movement. The Black Panther Challenge, or as my peers would say, the hashtag Black Panther Challenge. A movement to get kids, specifically children of color, to see the film. To be a part of and witness this cultural moment of viewing a black superhero on the big screen. To give kids the opportunity to see a story with someone who looks like them. In a different, engaging, and revolutionary way. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about art, more specifically kids and art, the importance of art and the experience for children, especially considering the amazing work of art that is Black Panther. And I really wanted to talk to someone who understood art a lot better than I do. And I also wanted to talk to someone who had a firm grasp on African culture, not only because the film depicts and portrays African and Black culture in many ways, but because the experience of trying to teach culture, especially black culture, to kids through art is a task in itself. So I contacted my middle school teacher, Barbara Gathers. 
You know, there are so many different innovations we could point to in the arts that came out of the people who are melanated. So if that's the case, then where would these people be if their progress had not been interrupted by the devastation of the Holocaust we now call enslavement? Now, Ms. Gathers and I haven't spoken in years, and there was a part of me during our interview that magically transformed into the 12-year-old girl I was when I met her, and that's probably pretty obvious considering that I refer to her as Miss Gathers, but she had a lot of thoughts about the film. At the time of our conversation, she'd had seen it twice, and I say this because after our talk, she went to go see the movie a third time. There was a lot of aspects of the film she found engaging, and... Like me, she found herself watching interviews and reading a bunch of press surrounding the film. So, have you heard of the Black Panther Challenge? Um, I have, and I looked at something related to it on Facebook, but um, I didn't really, no, I didn't, no, I didn't delve into it very much. Okay, so my understanding of the Black Panther Challenge is this New York resident, Frederick Joseph, wanted kids from the Boys and Girls Club in Harlem to see this film. And basically, oh, yeah. so they raised money for Yeah, it. it was on a GoFundMe account. It raised, like, over its goal, um, and it inspired this global movement. Yeah. I remember that, yeah. like, even, like, till celebrities on Twitter were just saying, hey, I have a ticket to X showing at x place dm me if you want the deets and it's really a global movement now um and something i found fascinating about the boys and girls harlem story is that it was for specifically the storytellers program of the boys and girls club in harlem and what the storytellers program does it's dedicated to exposing children to the arts um, specifically arts in audio and video that reflect people that look like them, that reflects their own members. And some of these mediums include creative writing, filmmaking, theater production, music. And so I go That's through this I explanation with Miss Gathers to sort of prep her for the main reason I wanted to talk to her. The arts and the simple, simple idea that arts matter. And in order to create art, kids need to be in a space to experience and be inspired by art. Right? And Ms. Gathers knew a lot about arts because she had spent her career as an educator. Her teaching practices highlighted its value. Engaging sort of passionate engagement and participation in the arts, I think of what you did there. But before she was a teacher of the arts, she started out just like the rest of us, a student, just a kid, growing up in the halls of high school. Barbara was an art student in the late 60s and attended High School of Music and Arts. Not too long ago, I was a high school student in New York City myself, and I knew this place as LaGuardia High School. It is the art school in the city. You know, the one where all the famous actors and famous musicians and, well, the school was just famous itself. Don't you know who I am? Yeah. That one. I'm talking about 
that school, the fame school. That's a special high school for young people who are artists in New York City. I auditioned on violin because I played violin in middle school. I was the concert master, which is the first seat violinist when I was in middle school. And I auditioned, got in. I got in on violin, but I had always wanted to sing. So I think I stayed in the string class for about two months. And then I asked for permission to switch to be a voice major. And I always tell people that the greatest experience at that school was, of course, the opportunity to, you know, refine my, hone my skills in as a musician. But the, the, the very next thing, or maybe equal to that, was because as a teenager, because your peers are so important, it was to be in school with a whole bunch of people from all five boroughs who were passionate about art like me. That was so important at that age because now you had people who confirmed that you're not crazy for being the way you are. And honestly, to this day, de decades later, those are still the most important people in my life. Even though we don't live near each other, we don't see each other often, but we keep in touch, we talk, we still have a love that's like, I saw you yesterday, like we were in class sitting next to each other, we were in math class yesterday. The music and art school or just music and art? It was, well, the thing is, it was music and art high school. And um, because we were, at that time, we were up in Harlem and we were vocal music, instrumental music, visual arts, and um, yeah, instrumental music, vocal music, and visual arts. And the other school downtown did dance, and they also did some vocal music and drama. And then when the two came together... When Barbara became... was attending the school, it was making a transition into combining high school of music and arts and the school of performing arts. Now, in present day, the schools coincide in one building, but at the time, the two schools existed in different parts of the city, still associated with each other, just in different places. I remember meeting him. <laughs> so I think another question I have is, um, how was it for you? Because I, I remember this particular story you told about a girl wanting to touch your afro or your hair, I think, at school when yeah. you were attending. What was it like? Because you're, you're a young black girl at this performative arts school. What was that experience like? Did you ever feel like you, you, like you had to try harder? Did you feel like you, didn't, you couldn't connect to the art that was being taught slash trained to you? Did you have to, was there an Afrocentric um, focus in the arts that you were learning? First of all, you didn't just go there because you like, you like the arts. You right. had to, the audition was extremely competitive. A lot of people, even now, they audition thousands of kids and only a couple of hundred get in. So it's always been very, very competitive to get in there. So you get in there, you're already engaged in this art form. You already take it seriously. I was already a kid playing, I had already been playing violin for at least three years, and I already had an appreciation for the so-called European classical music, you know. And even with it being at that time a predominantly white school, we still had that in common with those kids. They were still, they were white teenagers from all over the city who were artists. And, 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 and because of the time that we were living in, it had some things in common with the time we're living in right now, which is there was racial and 
and issues in the air that people who are sensitive are going to be socially conscious about. Except that time, for us, it was civil rights movement, and for them, it was the war in Vietnam. So you had white kids who were socially, you know, really socially active and socially conscious and concerned about things that were going on in the country. But a lot of them were, you know, from environments where they hadn't been around a lot of black people. So yeah, something to touch the hair was a curiosity. And because they were artistic, I guess they had the nerve to ask because they wanted to experience (laughs) that. But we were, you know, at that time also very conscious, like having an Afro at that time wasn't just because it's a look that you want to get. It was a statement. In those days, you had an Afro because you're making a statement. I'm proud that I'm black and my hair is beautiful, natural as it is. So if you see somebody with a natural, you could pretty much assume they have some level of black consciousness. That's just how it was back then, because it took a little bit of nerve to wear it because it was seen as your hair is just nappy. You don't comb your hair. What's wrong? I had a struggle with my father because he didn't. He didn't like it. He didn't understand why am I wearing my hair like that? I'm not African. I'm not in Africa. You know, so (laughs) that was where the struggle was. The kids, you know, the white kids I was in school with, a lot of them were trying to get their hair to look like that because they they have to get what they call a perm in order to get their hair to curl up like that. So you had some white kids who were doing that. I wouldn't say there was really a challenge because we really were in the same school, but we respected each other's space. You had the black kids who were Afrocentric and culturally minded. We hung out with each other. You had the white kids. They hung out with each other. And then you had the black kids who hung out with white kids. (laughs) After finishing her studies in high school, Barbara still wanted to pursue a career in the arts. She treasured its value and its influence on her own education. I graduated in 1970 with a award for being a top vocalist. Of course you did. Which, <laughs> a vocalist, you know, <laughs> I felt pretty good about that. But I auditioned for Manhattan School of Music and I didn't get in. And I thought, well, okay, you can teach anything through music. So why not go and get a degree in education? And I, I went to Long Island University in Brooklyn for on a full scholarship. And I majored in education, minored in music. From there, I did my master's degree at Brooklyn College in in education, elementary education. Always had a passion for finding a way to artistically teach whatever subject it was. At first, I really didn't know what she meant by that, to teach anything through music or to teach any subject artistically. But then I started to remember Even when I was her student, she used arts to teach seemingly simple and basic curriculum things. I remember trying to ace African geography quizzes on the internet and creating fancy PowerPoint presentations about moments in slavery or the civil rights movement. Throughout her career, she stayed true to practicing artistic teaching methods. Barbara was one of the founding teachers at Lennox Academy, a middle school for gifted children that expanded out of a gifted program in PS 235. When the principal decided he wanted to expand it into a middle school, he sat down and he said he felt the best way for a program to be successful is if you let teachers teach their passion. And so he put me in social studies 
another teacher who was a fabulous ELA teacher, doing ELA, another teacher teach math. And in that way, each of us was teaching the subject that we loved the most. Because it was a small school, it was enough for each of us to teach that subject to all the students in the school. So I, I taught a curriculum that I designed. It would address what was required for the grade, but I also incorporated the cultural and ethnic information that would help enrich their training in a social studies unit that was directly related to them. One of the things was genealogy, which is family history study. So I wrote a genealogy workbook that was... This is where teaching a combination of arts and African culture come into play. I would teach Egypt for a much longer time than was required in the textbook. I didn't bother to use the textbook because <laughs> the textbook was not Afrocentric and therefore the information was often inaccurate. And that would always involve doing art projects that embrace the history and the culture of ancient Egypt. You know, I also took students to the Metropolitan Museum, to the Brooklyn Museum, because they have excellent collection on Egyptian artifacts. To, so I could show them how the things that the people created connect to the information that they're reading on paper, because that's what brings social studies to life. And as a kid, I hated social studies because I felt it was the most boring subject ever possibly invented, and I had no idea what in the world does it have to do with me. <laughs> this is part of what Barbara did at this school for 15 years, teaching students in Brooklyn, New York, a part of their history. History not often told and often neglected by textbooks, but was still important and relevant, and she taught them through art. These trips to the Met and to the Brooklyn Museum were important too because she herself found the physical experience of seeing art rewarding when she visited Egypt in 1983. She saw the visual representations of her history and monuments and sightseeing, and it resonated. Barbara was not the only one of her school and music and art peers who pursued teaching, especially with a focus in arts. Additionally, a focus in African culture. This morning, I was on the phone with one of my best friends, and she is a artist still, and she teaches at one of the schools that is, again, like, like the school we went to, especially for young people who are artistic. They've been doing something that the movie Black Panther has been a sort of catalyst to, getting audiences of color to appreciate and celebrate a rich African and Black culture that's their own. And one of the things she was saying was that, oh, you know, I feel like all these years I've been trying to teach African culture and trying to get these kids to listen to me and they're looking at me like I'm crazy and then they go see one movie and all of a sudden they're all interested in African culture. <laughs> Wearing dashikis and doing the Wakandan salute. Yeah, yeah, you know? <laughs> and so I, what I said to her, no, it's, you didn't waste your time. What you did was break up the ground. I don't know if you know anything about farming or gardening, mm -hmm. but if you have ground that's hardened, the earth, you got to get, you know, certain garden tools like, you know, pick and hoe and pitchfork and whatever you can, you got to break up the ground first and soften it. And when it's softened and it's ready, you put the seeds in, but still it's not going to grow if it doesn't get water and light. So I said to her, what you did was you broke up the ground and you planted the seeds. And what this movie did was it 
it watered those seeds and it gave it light so that it could grow. But when it grows, it's still a product of you breaking up the ground and putting the seeds in. So millions of kids and adults all over the world who have had little views of African-American, African culture, or, you know, hearing things about the quote unquote black history month or the things about segregation, desegregation, all of the, the buzz terms that come up around this time of year, every year that people pay little or no attention to, but they hear it every year. All of a sudden now there's some place to sit it. All of a sudden now you like, get it. Oh, African culture is something to be celebrated. Oh, it's something I can be happy with my friends about. Oh, it's something, it's pride. Oh, it's strength. It's strong women. It's men that respect the women, men that kneel down to the authority of a woman who is standing up for her country. It's all of those little things that you see happening in the movie. And these are not conscious things that this is all going into the subconscious. And then when it re when it comes back up and it surfaces in the conscious world, it's a, uh, yes, I'm going to go for that doctorate. Yes. I'm going to apply for that school. Yes. I'm going to quit this job and go for my passion, which is film production or acting or painting or dancing or, um, speech writing or whatever it is, whatever passion is calling that person's soul, because now they have examples of people who are doing it. If you listen to Chadwick Bosman speak, if you listen to, um, Lupita Nyong'o speak and any of these other people, um, Ryan Coogler, these are highly educated professionals. Yes. Mm -hmm. They didn't just wake up one morning, brush their teeth and say, you know what? I'm going to do a movie about I Africa. I am going to be an actor. You feel me? You know what I'm saying? You know, and Ryan Coogler talks like that. So the people who are making money now are people who think outside the box. You know, they are the people who are the innovators, the, pe the people who are the problem solvers, the people who look at a situation and say, now this isn't working. This is a better way to do this. And here's the, here's the device or here's the idea or here's the concept you need in order to do it better. And that is what you learn when you practice an art form. You learn to solve problems. What I always told students was, as you're working through a piece, whether it's a painting, a drawing, a, a piece of pottery, you, you're constantly, I want you to constantly ask yourself, what if? What if I, what if I put red here? What if I make a, a wavy line instead of a straight line here? What if I squeeze the clay a little harder? What if I wipe the clay a little softer? What if I use a pencil to draw this line instead of a paintbrush? You know, the what ifs. And that's always expanding the mind and showing you 
a variety of possibilities for the same situation. That's what innovators do. And those are the people who are in demand right now. This is why Ryan Coogler is the man he is today. Because he asked, what if? What if a black superhero in a black country in Africa? What if? Coming up after the break, more what ifs. What if students did not know how to be innovators? What if they were afraid or didn't know how to ask what if? What if they completely pushed back the idea of embracing the arts? What if it just wasn't possible? And what if Barbara finds herself at a different school? and a challenge to bring arts to their curriculum. This episode of Ann Politics is brought to you by the determination of a college graduate to pursue her dreams. That's all I got. This is a brand new podcast, so I don't have any sponsors, but this is how I'm going to be running this thing. I'm going to act like I'm talking to millions of people, and hopefully one day... I will be talking to millions of people, and you can help me make that happen. You can go follow me on Twitter at gbanderson underscore. Also, you can keep checking this SoundCloud page and politics with Janelle Anderson. This is the only place for right now where you can listen to all of my content. I will let you know when that changes. And tell your friends about this podcast. Share it with a friend. Tell them about how great this episode was or what you didn't like about it. Let me know what you didn't like about it. You can tweet at me. And yeah, I really hope you're enjoying the episode so far. And we're just going to keep moving on with the show. Thanks for listening. episode that Barbara Gathers was a former teacher of mine, but it turns out I did not attend Lennox Academy. I went to Frederick Douglass Academy 8. Yes, it was a school named after Frederick Douglass, and yes, there are eight of them, but that's beside the point. This was the school Barbara taught at after her time at Lennox Academy. She was my social studies and technology teacher. More importantly, and artistically speaking, she was a kind of after-school mentor to me. We sang together after school in preparation for the annual spring showcase for 6th through 8th grade. And since my time at FDA 8, art has transitioned from an extracurricular activity to an essential part of their daily school curriculum. Is that, can I do that? Have to try. Okay, thanks. Okay, no problem. Now every scholar gets to express themselves in some way, either through music, dance. We have theater through visual arts. In some way, they get to explore who they are through the arts. So it is actually central now to the programming. And 
I can't really see the school without it anymore. It, it's really become the heart of the school. That's Miss Grandchamps. She's the current principal at Frederick Douglass Academy 8, where what's possible for me is possible for you. That's the school-wide motto. That's been the motto since I was there. I realized after having been in her office for a couple of minutes, the principal's office looked exactly how I remembered it. Not that I made frequent trips to the principal's office as a kid, but you know, the essence felt the same. The office looked like how do you think a principal's office would look like. There were coffee mugs filled with yellow number two pencils and there was a box of Kleenex tissues that every teacher in America seems to have on her desk and there were lots of burgundy. The school color was burgundy. Door borders were burgundy, and the walls had splashes of burgundy, and even the furniture, the rich cherry wood furniture, had that rich burgundy tone. In this small middle school with only roughly one and a half floors and 330 students, the feeling was the same. What's possible for me is possible for you. Behind her, on her bookshelf, was the picture book of The I Sing, A Letter to My Daughters by Barack Obama. And displayed on the shelf below it was The Rose That Grew From Concrete by Tupac Shakur. The life of a middle school principal never stops, and it's pretty busy, so you can probably hear some walkie-talkies, door knocks, and email notifications in the background as we were talking. Back when I attended Frederick Douglass Academy, I knew Miss Grandchamps, but not as the principal. So when you first came to FDA 8, you came as the assistant principal, right? Yes, I did. So how did you see the need for the arts change throughout the years now that you're principal? Well, when I was the assistant principal and I would see, I was here for the after school programs, I would see how the arts brought the scholars to life. You know, I would see the scholars in a way that I didn't see them in math class. And I'm not saying math isn't important or science isn't important, but I just got to see children come alive in a way that I didn't see them come alive in the classroom. And the prior principal and I would always talk about how that would enhance the education at Frederick Douglass Academy 8, especially being a college preparatory school. And, you know, we talked about the different careers that, you know, students will be going into. So it's not just going to be careers of, you know, scientists and lawyers, whatever, but who are our future poets? Who are our future writers? You know, who are our future Alvin Ailey dancers or someone who's going to want to maybe be on Broadway someday, you know? And being able to give that opportunity to the scholars here in East New York was very important to, to her and to me especially as a mother of an artist. I had to ship my son across town to go to art school because he grew up in a particular area that there was no schools that would give him this opportunity. So I had the means to be able to bus him to a school so he can have that well-rounded education. And I felt that we should be able to provide that to the scholars here um, in FDA in East New York because there's many gifts and talents here. Let's keep the talent here at, mm -hmm. in East New York. In reference to like providing the means, what do you specifically mean by that? Do you mean money? Well, yeah. Well, when it was for my son 
to be able to get the arts education, that was definitely money oriented. When he was younger, I had to pay for outside music and instruction. And then when he got to junior high school, the school he went to, I had to pay a van service to pick him up from the house to take him to school because there was no way I was gonna to get to my job on time. And because I wanted him to have that well-rounded education where he was getting the honors science and math and everything, but also getting to still practice his craft as an artist. And it was the best thing I could have ever done because as he moved on into high school, he continued that journey and that actually led him into a really good college. I felt that if that's what I would want my child to have, that's what I would want the children that I serve to have. And lo and behold, we approach the problem that most schools encounter, right? Money. You want to have art programs, but you also need the money for art programs. Art doesn't come cheap in the public education system. So they proposed a grant. Grants to those who can provide funds for an art program. What if they had the money they needed to create spaces for students so they had the space to create? We wrote a grant. And actually, some people came to us and asked us, what would you want, if you were able to get the funding, what would you want it to look like? And this was the Matisse the, grant, The right? Matisse grant. Mm -hmm. They were going to give a grant for arts in school called the Schools Choose Grant, meaning that they would give money for schools to develop their own arts programs. Their thing was about exposure. And their thing was like getting kids to go to shows and, and to get teaching artists in and to really expose children. But we wanted mastery and longevity. We didn't want it to just be for the time of the grant and then after the grant was over, then the arts disappears, which is tends what happens. Like once funding starts to become an issue, then the arts disappears in the school. Because the grant was just for five years. Right, just okay. for five years. The people from Matisse came to the school. They were in the teacher's room meeting and I walked in there and one of the ladies, she introduced me to the ladies and told them who I was. And one of the ladies said to me, what high school did you go to? And I said, I went to music and art high school. She said, I know because I was your guidance counselor. Don't you know who I am? Remember my name. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> so these were the people who gave us the money for the small you know, for world. The yes. This is when some big changes started to happen. It's almost like the feeling when your school starts to make some really cool changes, but they all start to take effect right after you graduate. My younger brother also attended Frederick Douglass Academy 8 after me, but I only had a slight idea of the changes they were making. So we were able then to take a classroom and convert it to a dance studio, another classroom and convert it to a visual arts studio. We were able to buy more instruments and um, and then start a program that included full, you know, full-time two 90-minute periods a week for every student in the school to have either dance, music, or visual arts. 
I only knew of changes when my favorite teacher left or if they replaced the hot fudge sundae Pop-Tarts in the vending machine for a healthier snack option. But the changes FDA 8 were making to the curriculum and to the physical space of the school were far more significant than I knew at the time. And Miss Gathers was at the forefront of it. She was the mama of it, and she bought into the vision right away. One thing that she kept me on track, on, on task, and that's very <laughs> hard for a principal because we are juggling so many things, right. and she really helped move the mission, you know, move the vision, make sure we were moving. This year we, we did this, next year we're gonna do that, and the following year we're gonna do that. She really, really made sure that the, this arts program was just more than just checking a box on the academic policy, that it was something that was going to enhance the lives of students. Did this transition happen at a time where like you could have a sixth grade student where this program wasn't implemented and then they would be in eighth grade and now they're taking art classes for 90 minute periods? Like, what was it like for the student population, do you think? Like, what no, was it? No, it was rolled out school-wide starting from sixth grade. Oh, okay. And they had a major, if their major was dance, for example, in the sixth grade, they stayed with dance for all three years. Wow. With this transition, I became the arts coordinator. You know, as a full-time employee, half of my job was arts coordinator and half of my job was visual arts teacher. So I had less students, less classes, than the dance and music teachers because half of my program was time for me to coordinate the arts in general. The students would get a major in the sixth grade and then that's what they stayed with. Sometime there was someone who would ask to change and because they were this or that, usually the answer was no. Problem is we're fighting against, we're in a society where I call your generation the click and go people. It's like click and go, click and I'm done. I want, I need something, click, I'm satisfied, move on to the next thing. Right. So it's not, not the, the, the mentality, the training for delving into an art form and working at it to master it and honing your craft is not there. That, that, that's been the hard sell with teaching the arts in an in a inner city middle school, the hard sell is getting kids to value the notion of working hard at something and being rewarded simply because you feel good about what you've done. Do you think that students at any time, do you think kids didn't see themselves as the innovators? They didn't know how to think what if? Like if you don't, if, if all you see is like a basketball player or like a music video dancer, would they struggle to think what if I did this thing that I don't see a lot of? No, because that's a training. Mm. The what if, when it was like the like the imaginary world of Wakanda and the world that we know of from studies of history of ancient Africa, asking what if was a way of life. But now since it's not, uh, it's even a challenge because asking what if for a kid in your neighborhood at FDA can mean... Well, that means I may come up with a solution that my peers won't approve of because they'll think it's stupid or they'll think it's dumb or they'll think it's weird. 
So I'm not going to do that because I don't want to be unpopular. So I'm going to just go with, I don't have to go with what if because there is already an answer that somebody else created that's acceptable. So I'll just do that. And so a lot of times students would say to me uh, in a challenge to, you know, not conscious challenge, but in a challenge to me telling them to ask what if, and if we are looking at a piece that they're working on, because that's another thing, you know, that was a learned behavior was teaching them how to take a piece of art and work on it for weeks, right. not come in and give you a piece of paper and some crayons and 45 minutes, you raising your hand done with a Kool-Aid smile. This piece has to develop as you evolve as an artist. So we always use, what do you see? What do you think? What do you wonder? That's how we discuss the piece of art. So a lot of times they would say to me, well, do you think I should make this over here? Should it be darker or should I make this lighter? And I, my, I would just turn it back on them and say, what do you think? Whose name, whose name is on the back of this piece? It's not, my, it's not my work. So it doesn't matter what I think. I can give you a professional assessment based upon what skills we use as visual artists, but in terms of the final decision about this piece and what color that should be or how dark or light it should be, that is your call. And guess what? Whatever call you make is correct because it's your piece. We really invested in creating spaces for arts. We invested in hiring uh, qualified teachers and really looking for teachers that weren't just gonna come here and have kids pasting macaroni on a plate. Really taking them through a study of arts, of you know, visual arts or the study of dance and you know, the different genres of dance and, and the same thing with music. And we're evolving every year to um, different things, you know, because of that. And as the school and the arts program were evolving, the students of FDA 8 were evolving as well. And so were their crafts. And in the midst of chaos that is being a middle schooler and being in middle school, they're starting to get to know who they are, their passions, their dislikes, and what they like to do. I was looking so, at some of the art links you sent me, and mm-hmm. they, they're amazing. Like I did, it's, it's when, you, when you really give them the opportunity and the space yes. and the time. Um, and the instruction. And the support uh, mm-hmm. to create. It, 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 the, the products are, are really astounding. Funding is still an issue at the school, mm-hmm. um, but we've been able to really, I've been really able to be very creative with the budget um, that I see that this will continue um, uh, for the long haul to make sure that the Matisse money wasn't really tied to teachers. So once that the money was gone, I didn't have to get rid of the teacher. Like maybe some some other things might we might lose, like some of the teaching artists or maybe some of the supplies. But actually the DOE has actually improved in giving us a little bit of money for supplies now and things like that. Um, but um, yeah, it, it's actually drawn a very, we've grown in, in, in enrollment because we have the arts. Wow. Last year, I found some, I think Ms. Grandchamps and I together, we found this program that would provide money for us to do a Broadway show, uh, you know, to produce a Broadway show. And um, at FDA, at, at the school. Because you need some and, kind of special permission, right? Well, they have, uh, they have a company, a few companies, but there's this company in particular called Broadway Junior 
that they'll take a Broadway show and sort of package it so that a school can do it. Got it. And with that package, you get the the scores, you get the music, you get the choreography, you get the um, you know the scripts, you get everything that you need in order to pull it off. So to take on doing this Broadway show was a lot, but we did it. And the show we got was fame. Which oh was my God. <laughs> Barbara Gathers retired from French Douglas Academy 8 last year in July. She now lives in Florida, but she still keeps in contact with the scholars and their artistic efforts. She continues to help students and let students beg the question, what if? Because of the arts, these students of color in a middle school in East New York, Brooklyn, can continue to ask, continue to wonder, and continue to create the what-ifs. Who knows, maybe someday they'll create the next major Afro-futuristic blockbuster movie like Black Panther. Maybe they'll be at the forefront of another cultural moment. Thanks for listening to this episode of And Politics with Janelle Anderson. This is the Black History Month episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I do recommend that you go see Black Panther. Marvel did not sponsor this episode. It's just a really good movie. I really recommend it. Let me know what you think of the episode. You can tweet me at jbanderson underscore. The music in this episode was provided by Ryan Little and Lee Rosevere from freemusicarchive.org. And remember, just because news doesn't take place on the political stage doesn't mean it isn't political. Could anybody have made up that the president of the United States would call Africa a shithole country and then within a few days a movie would premiere in Los Angeles that would break all records and it would star all I mean... people from Africa? <laughs> including the There's a political aspect to every story and every story is personal. Till next time, this is And Politics. <laughs>